Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 27th. It's early afternoon in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Many thousands of miles away, uh, a few days ago, there was an election, an election or what we might call an election or some people might call an election in Russia, uh, put on by our old friend Vladimir Putin. Um, Surprise, surprise, uh, the pro-Putin party in these parliamentary elections won a big majority, according to Reuters. the Economist, uh, never a magazine to, uh, to, to to be too bloviating, suggests that the Russian election was fixed. Um, uh, uh, an opinion piece in the Post uh, yesterday suggests that whilst this election was supposed to shore up Putin's legitimacy, it did the reverse. Uh, hundreds protest, uh, according to Al Jazeera. So much of the world's media is somewhat critical of this election. Uh, Alex Navalny, the central figure, I guess, symbolic figure in the Russian opposition to um, to Putin, uh, told the opposition, according to the New York Times, that they should be discouraged, but only a little bit. Um, uh, opponents to Putin continue to uh, cherish a memorial to the slain opposition leader uh, Boris Nemtsov that you can find in uh, in the main square uh, in uh, in Moscow. Uh, meanwhile, we in the West are not quite sure what to make of what's happening in Russia. Google and Apple apparently have been successfully put under pressure by the Putin regime to remove a voting app, a pro Navalny voting app, on their platforms, which has created. A great deal of controversy. Um, according to Fiona Hill, who worked for, famously worked for, for Trump uh, and then fell out with Trump, uh, all this has resulted in what she calls, in, a, in, a, in an influential foreign policy piece, the Kremlin's strange victory. Uh, Putin continues, she argues, to exploit American dysfunctionality, and sh- he is fueling American decline. I'm not sure, though, if. Everyone agrees with this critique of Putin and of Russia. My guest today on the show, uh, Joseph uh, Weisberg, has a new book out called Russia Upside Down. Uh, the subtitle is An Exit Strategy for the Second World, uh, not Second World, that was a Freudian era, An Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War, in which Weisberg suggests that we may have got Russia quite literally, upside down, and perhaps we need to reinterpret what's happening there. Uh, And I'm thrilled that Joe Weisberg is actually uh, joining us from New York City. Uh, Many of you will also know him because he is the the figure who created the Americans, the big television uh, hit. So he's well known. He's a writer. He's a teacher. He's a general troublemaker. Uh, (laughs) Joe Weisberg, um, why should we be rethinking Russia? Why in your book are you suggesting that we may have Russia the wrong way up? I think the uh, reason is to both do what we can to make the conflict we're in less dangerous, 
for everyone. And in particular, if you look at you know, the effect this conflict has had on the United States recently, where our political system is really struggling, something I never could have imagined would happen 10 or 15 years ago. I don't think many people could have. It is happening. And although there's really no way to figure out exactly how much Russia is contributing to that, it clearly is contributing and making it worse. So there's a lot of self-interest in trying to, to rethink what's going on too. And I think, you know, everything you said about the elections that just took place in Russia, to me, are a perfect example of, you know, what will be an ongoing series of opportunities to see if there's a slightly different way of looking at it. Because when you started talking about all the different uh, people who have pointed out that the elections are fixed and the elections are a disaster in this way and that way, um, it's all true. There's not, I don't think there's even a word of that that isn't true, but there is a potentially different perspective, which is that elections as we see them, we usually have thought, well, we are the gold standard of fair elections. And if a country that we are at odds with is far to the side of us in that their elections are fixed or fraudulent, then that's almost a black and white issue. Ours are fair, theirs aren't fair. Our system is legitimate, theirs is not legitimate. And I don't think that's right. Again, it, it's not that the facts involved are exactly untrue, it's that the perspective is problematic. So let me give you another perspective. Another perspective is there is a spectrum from the fairest election you could ever imagine to the most fixed unfair election you could ever imagine. Pick your spot that you want to imagine us on that spectrum, right? A lot of things about our elections work well. A lot are starting to work a lot less well. Confidence is failing for a lot of people. Clearly, that isn't all just perception, right? There's a lot of enormous influence by people who make donations, enormous uh, political pressure politicians are under from donors. Money has too much influence in the system. So even if you don't get into the Trumpian fantasies about it being corrupt, there are other ways in which it's corrupt. So we're not all the way, I'm, I'm on a mirrored screen, so I'm getting my side screwed up. We're not all the way on one side of fair elections. We're somewhere on the spectrum. Russia is also somewhere on the spectrum, and the place they are at is further along towards good elections than the Soviet Union was. There's no, I don't think there's really any question about that. It's not that they're not still fixed, but you can have things happening like what just happened in this election, where the opposition had a strategy to try to find a way for the voters to express their views, even in an election they knew they were going to lose. So that's interesting. If we let go of, well, where is it in comparison to us and look at it, where is it in comparison to where they used to be? I have to say, in all fairness, they've also had more fair elections than this, so they're riding a bit of a roller coaster. But, you know, I think our our interest is mostly in taking care of ourselves and our elections and not so much complaining about or dictating about theirs. Joe, we had... Um... Tim Weiner on the show. Uh, he has a new boy. It was a new book last year about Putin's game of trying to undermine American democracy with his involvement in supporting Trump or at least promoting elements of Trump. What I don't understand about your argument is that um, the Russians seem to be in the business, and, and I don't think there's much debate about this, about undermining American democracy. So while what you're saying may have some truth, that American democracy isn't ideal, 
the Russians seem to be in the business, and this may be the nature of what you call the second Cold War, the Russians seem in the business of undermining American democracy, of, of trying to make it less and less credible. They're doing the same in Europe. So, so why should we think sympathetically of that? Why, why, why doesn't that remind us that they are, in fact, our enemy? That's, that's a great question, and I'm going to answer as soon as I say, if you haven't read Tim Weiner's book about the history of the CIA, it's absolutely brilliant and, and also a great kind of strangely enjoyable read. I say strangely because there's so much horrible stuff that he's documenting, but, but really great book. So here's what I would say. I would say that, again, it comes back to an issue of perspective, because when people lay out the facts, and you just alluded to some of them, about how Russia is essentially fighting with and war with, trying to undermine and destroy American democracy. That is true. I, I, I don't see any way to dispute that. I don't see any reason to dispute it. It is clearly happening. But our general perspective on that has been they are aggressive autocrats who want only to spread autocracy everywhere. And we are their innocent victims struggling to make more humane democracy. I don't buy that, Joe. Who says that? I mean, you're, you're, you're creating a straw man there. I don't think anyone believes that they're trying to conquer the world anymore. I think even the most uh, hostile critics of Putin recognize that he's relatively powerless and that his only business is trying to undermine our democracy. No one imagines that the Russians are trying to invade anymore. That, well, maybe I, I don't remember exactly the words I use. I may have overstated it. It is true that people don't think he's trying to invade other countries, but there is a broad consensus, which I think is correct, that he would like to see political systems more like his, both in former Soviet republics, in Eastern Europe, and probably in Western Europe too. He's been supportive, not just in word, but with financial resources of far-right parties, uh, throughout all of Europe. Um, I would say that the general take on why he is involved in Syria, which is, I think, partly right and partly wrong, but the general take is that he wants to support autocrats there. So it's not exactly the same as in the Soviet era, where there was a feeling that they wanted to spread communism all over the world and would use the military if necessary to do it. It's, it's certainly pulled back from that, but I, I don't think it's a straw man. I think it's almost a consensus that he believes in autocracy, not just as something for Russia, but as something to surround himself with as much as possible. Well, yeah, I, I buy that. And, and that's the argument that people like Timothy Schneider make. He's been on the show. Do you disagree with Schneider? Do you think that um, that, that, that Putin is not trying to, to, to peddle an alternative ideology to democracy, a kind of... Uh, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, 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 a charismatic authoritarianism. <laughs> That's a good phrase. I don't disagree. I agree. And since this is a book podcast, I may do this a number of times. But if you haven't read Schneider's uh, books, Black Earth, um, and I forget the title of the other one about the Holocaust, they're, they're revelatory. Bloodlands. Bloodlands, right. They're both revelatory, extraordinary works of scholarship. Um, I quote them both extensively in my book, even though I, I don't have any, I agree with all the facts in it. I have a difference of interpretation. So I agree with Schneider that Putin does want to do that. My difference is that I want to pull back and say, well, is that just out of nowhere? 
Is that just who Putin is and always was? Or have we ourselves played a role in coming together with Russia and Putin to create a back and forth conflict that has resulted in that? And that's how it looks to be. It does not look like it arose out of nowhere. It does not look like we are blameless. It does not look like our responsibility is any less than 50%. You're saying that we have 50% responsibility for Putin himself, for his what, for his ideology, for his regime? I don't understand. Well, let me get clarified. I think we have 50% responsibility for Putin's efforts to undermine our political system. I don't know what the answer Why? is. Why? I mean, surely it would be... Uh, Everyone would be happier if, if Putin wasn't in the business of undermining our, our, our or the Western democratic systems. People were much more sympathetic to Yeltsin and to Russian pre-Putin regimes that were more sympathetic and more respectful of Western democracy. So I don't understand what, why uh, why uh, the, the Americans... Are you suggesting that Putin is somehow existing in our interest, in a, that he, well, he, he, he's a convenient scapegoat, that we, we've created him? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, I would say that when he came to power, he seemed at the time not particularly hostile to the West. Of course, we don't know what was really in his heart, but both his words and his actions did not suggest any great hostility to the West. Maybe some things in his past did, but not the way he was behaving at first as president. Uh, and the, you know, the famous, a lot of this is what you don't see, that he wasn't really speaking in a hostile way or doing hostile things. The famous actual thing he did was to respond with great sympathy after September 11, offer us Russian resources, which we took him up on, to try to uh, fight back against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So there, it seems to me there was an opening there. And I'll tell you a couple of things we did around that. Uh, not too long before it, we started to let former Warsaw Pact nations into NATO. After that, after Putin started, took over and started and made positive overtures uh, around September 11, we started taking former Soviet republics into NATO. So now we're taking this country and a guy who probably is by nature a little, I don't know, I don't know if he's paranoid, but it's somewhat, you know, his, his job is protecting his country. And now the nations around him are starting to join a defense alliance with a country that he has not been outwardly hostile towards. Okay, that's one. Two, we started building a missile defense shield in Europe. And we claimed that this was to protect against missiles from other places, but it was built in former Warsaw Pact neighbors and surrounded Russia. So if, by the way, forget Putin, Russians have always been worried about, scared of, and felt somewhat surrounded. Now you have two different things we're doing that can be seen as aggressive and surrounding them. Then the final thing I mentioned is that not long after that, well, I mentioned two more things. One, we started taking a strong interest in Russian elections. So we started openly, and we had NGOs that were openly financially and, and financially backing opposition figures. And then finally, we started leveling this great number of sanctions against Russia. Yeah, so, so, uh, can, can, let me jump in there. What do you mean yeah, NGOs? Yeah. Give me an example of an NGO that was what, supported by the American government? Uh, the, um, the, uh, there are about three of them that all, I, I don't have the names of them at the tip of my tongue, although you can find them very... So you're suggesting easy. that the Americans were funneling money to the opposition through NGOs in Russia. Isn't that a sort of official Putin talking point? 
no, that's not, that's, that happened. And it's not, I don't think it's anything the NGOs or the American government did not. It was. Well, Joe, maybe we'll come back. We'll come back to Putin a little bit later in this conversation. But your book begins actually, not with Putin, but with Stalin. Um, You have a really interesting and, and I think for many people, quite controversial section on Joseph Stalin. You make this perhaps rather odd comparison between Stalin and George Washington. What do these two men have in common, you argue, in the book? Before I answer that, I want to say one thing that I tried to lead with in the book, too. You know, I get I get nervous about how people might misperceive me. Stalin was a monster. He was responsible for millions of deaths. He was one of the cruelest and most obviously evil dictators in the history of mankind. So when I start to ask myself questions about Stalin, what I'm really interested in is why does why did he have and does he continue to have so much support in Russia? How could someone who I would say objectively was a monstrous person and a terrible leader, how could he engender so much uh, loyalty? And I don't quite buy that it's all because there of disinformation and people not knowing the truth. In fact, it's really quite obvious that a lot of people who support Stalin and think of him as a great leader know about everything he did, especially now. That was a more complicated question at the time, but it's it's less complicated now. People know. So the analogy I drew to Washington came from a notion of mine that we tend to, with foreign leaders of enemy countries, focus only on their horrible crimes and not on anything positive they might have done. And we do the opposite with ourselves. Now, this is in the process of changing right now, I, I think, for the better. But certainly throughout the entire time I was growing up, and still to some degree, we focus on Washington as the father of our nation, all the great things he did, all the ways he was able to win the Revolutionary War, what a great president he was. And when I was growing up, it was barely mentioned that he was a slaveholder and, and didn't do anything to fight against the cause of slavery. And again, that's been changing somewhat, but it's certainly still very much de emphasized most of the time for most people. So I would say, I'm not trying to draw an analogy and say being a slaveholder for Washington was equal, exactly equal to Stalin, you know, being responsible for the great famines or the purges or obviously the gulag and all the people who perished and suffered. I'm saying it doesn't matter if they're exactly equal. I'm saying what I want to do is challenge our perception. We and our guys are all good and that's easy to understand. Their and their guys are all bad, and it's impossible to understand why people like them. If you look at why people like Stalin, he was in so many ways the father of that country. I mean, you talk about Lenin, but it was really Stalin who built the thing up, created a system in which millions of you know dirt poor peasants were taken into the cities, sent to schools, brought into some functional equivalent of, of, a, of a middle class there. Um, he incorporated all the republics and turned it into one solid nation. He was, you know, he was responsible for for building the country so that if you were someone who lived in that country and supported the country and its system, which at that time most probably did, then he was someone you liked. And the, you know, obviously, if it were me, I would get over all that stuff and say, but he killed millions of people. He's a monster. Who cares about the good things? That's not really how most people, or at least not how a lot of people think. I'm not sure about that, Joe. Are you worried about sort of falling into the 
Beatrice and Sidney Webb trap of idealizing this kind of authoritarianism. Uh, many Westerners have fallen into that trap. And it sounds as if you are at least flirting with that. Uh, you know, you you begin talking about Stalin and say, well, yes, he was a mass murderer, but... Uh, and you use that word but a lot in the book. And, and in this comparison between Washington and Stalin, I, I think you're going to invite, at best, a lot of criticism. Um, and at worst, sort of real hostility, because it seems a, a slightly absurd comparison to compare Stalin and Washington. Well, I'm glad you asked, because, you know, what you're sort of asking about is my kind of primary anxiety about the book. And I had it the entire time I was writing it. I still have it now. I spent a lot of time in the book writing about that issue and my concern. I'm well aware of the history of people who were sort of apologists you know, even even for Stalin, which is an incredible thing to think anybody could be an apologist for Stalin. And many Westerners like, uh, you know, the Webbs, who were notorious fellow travelers of Stalin. Yes, there, there were a lot. And when the truth about Stalin really finally came out irrefutably, a lot of them dropped away and some of them stuck to their guns, which is a, probably a good personality test, you know, when it's proved beyond a reasonable doubt that you have made a terrible moral error do you, do you try to change or do you stick to it? Um, which, which is a really good question. I, I've asked myself other, other questions as well, which is, you know, do I have a, I really, I have a chapter in the book where I try to ask myself, because one of the things I'm doing in the book is trying to say, let's try to be a little more self-aware about our politics. It's supposed to acting like all of this exists out there and there are facts and truths and we can just argue about all of that. It would be very helpful for a lot of us to look internally more and try to figure out how we came to our politics. So I have a section where I ask myself, well, do I have some, I didn't know it, but is it possible I have like some kind of soft spot for dictators? I mean, it'd be the last thing I'd ever want to have, but is it possible? And I spend quite a few pages trying to kind of, you know, exploring that question. And then it's probably more germane to Putin than Stalin, but I also ask myself, look, it's not even a question. I, my whole life have had a uh, kind of natural, sympathy for people I feel are misunderstood. And I think it's because I felt very misunderstood as a kid. I had a lot of trouble socially and getting along with other kids. So is, is that feeling that I carry with me throughout life now actually affecting my, how I see the politics of Putin? Do I think, well, this guy just mm -hmm. understood by America, misunderstood by America. It's my job to fix that. But as long as I have that awareness, I can, I hope, protect myself from it, A, by sharing it with the reader instead of hiding it. Second of all, by being very careful not to fall into the trap that I have to either believe or put forward Putin as all good or all bad. What I want to do is find the complexity and I go to great pains to try we to do that with it. You do that with Stalin as well. A couple of weeks ago, Joe, I was in uh, Kazakhstan. I was doing a speech there. I happened mm -hmm. to have a free afternoon. I, I'm not sure if you've been to Kazakhstan. I visited Matt. Um, Malinovka, which is uh, a former gulag. Uh, and it's not like going to Auschwitz, but it, 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 it's a pretty traumatic experience when you read about the terrible crimes against humanity and the human suffering that Stalin created. Um, uh, at what point, you know, I, I take your point about some elements, I guess, of Stalin, uh, and I don't want to really spend any more time but uh, talking about Stalin himself but at what point does the 
the criminality of a man like Stalin uh, uh, overpower everything else. And you just have to accept that here was a man, he might not be quite perhaps as evil as, as Hitler or Pol Pot, but he certainly was in their category of evil dictator and mass murderer. You know, in, in Kazakhstan, for example, uh, in the Kazakh famine of 1931 to 1933, something like 30 or 40% of Kazakhs died. And a lot of that can be blamed on Stalin. Uh, oh, how much time? I know you were at one point in the CIA and you, you, you're, you're the founder of the Americans. How much time have you spent in Russia and, and experiencing the kind of crimes that, that Stalin committed? Well, let me answer the first part of your question first. I'll get to the second part. For me, the point at which that overpowers everything and just turns somebody into a monstrous criminal is, you know, as soon as I learn about it. So that is, for me, that overpowers everything with Stalin without a doubt. And I say that very clearly in my book. That doesn't seem to be the case for a lot of Russians. And that's what I really want to investigate because part of trying to get along with Russia today is understanding people who think and feel differently. So how can, it seems so obvious to me, it seems it seems so obvious to you that somebody that monstrous, there's not much more to say. So how do we understand people who say there's a lot more to say? And that's what I'm trying to investigate. Um, okay, well, let's move on. And I, and, I, and I appreciate you've been very reasonable in your defense. I, I don't agree with you. But um, one of the, the more interesting parts of the book, I thought, was a comparison. You seem to be making comparison between uh, Russia or the Soviet Union, late Soviet Union and the United States. You write quite sympathetically about Brezhnev. Uh, it was intriguing because uh, I had the Princeton historian Harold James on the show last year, and he wrote an interesting piece comparing the decline in the United States uh, today with the 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 the, the, the end of and uh, the 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 end of history moment in the Soviet Union. You also compare the the two countries' experience in Afghanistan, and I think you're right to suggest that they're actually fairly similar. Um, what do you make of, of Harold James's argument that what's happening in America, this sort of gerontocracy of men like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, it's kind of like what happened at the end of uh, at the end of the twentieth century in the Soviet Union? I, I'm not ready to to sign on to that yet. You know, I think that uh, what happened in the Soviet Union was they had a succession of leaders. Who had who, who really were starting not just starting for Brezhnev it was quite a long time when he was mentally incapable and also addicted to I think painkillers or sleeping pills or something, you know Andropov who was actually okay mentally but then quickly declined and Chernenko who was apparently mentally not in great shape. So that's not the same as just having old leaders. You know you could say whatever you want about Donald Trump. I'm not a supporter or fan of Donald Trump but his mental acuity seemed quite sharp. And so I would not connect the problems we had at that time. He could have been 50 and, and doing the exact same thing. So I think if you want to look at parallel decline, I, wouldn't, I at least wouldn't put it on that. You know, the, the thing that was interesting to me about Brezhnev was that I had grown up when he, and when he was already in serious decline and he became a kind of a caricature of a gerontocratic, person who was clinging to power only for the sake of power. And when I started learning about 
who he had been when he was younger, it was really quite surprising. He was very well liked by a lot of people. Uh, he had good social skills. He was smart. Uh, he really was very invested in trying to uh, play a role as general secretary that would help uh, secure world peace. I know these are all platitudes, and the only reason I mention them is because there was truth to them, and they were so different from the, from the vision I had. And I think that was true of the other characters as well. I only saw them at, at, their, at their worst and least capable. And, and what it all added up to to me was that you did not get to the top of the Soviet hierarchy the way I thought you did by just having a pure lust for power. You had to be very smart, very capable, and generally speaking, they were all idealists. They were idealists for- well, Brezhnev? Brezhnev was an idealist? Yes. Yes, he was a absolute full-on communist idealist. He believed in the system. He believed in what he was fighting for. I mean, look, really so did you know Gorbachev. Gorbachev was not- Right, well, it's interesting with Gorbachev. I was going to bring him up because of all the characters, all the Soviet leaders from Stalin to Brezhnev to Andropov, the, the one you seem least sympathetic to is Gorbachev. I, I don't think that's right. I, I think that I personally feel most sympathetic to Gorbachev. I, he's most like me. His view of the world is most like mine. Uh, and, and also, he just seems to be a, a kind of wonderful guy in so many ways. So I think what you may be reacting to is I try to explore, again, much as I try to explore why is Stalin so popular, I tried to explore why Gorbachev is so unpopular right, in the right. Union, and it just, you know, really comes down mostly to the fact that he presided over the disintegration, and of course, without a doubt, many things he did contributed to that, and there was enough powerful sentiment of people who didn't want the country to disintegrate that he became then and remains now horribly unpopular. I think there's some, I think there's some polling that suggests his his unpopularity is receding a bit, which I think would be good. Joe, let's go back to go. Uh, let's go back to Putin. Finally, um, we've had a number of shows about the kind of economic system that Putin is exporting. I had the very brave Financial Times journalist Catherine Belton, who now is uh, being taken through the law courts in the UK by Putin's people about how what she calls KGB capitalism a sort of a rotten kind of uh, capitalism took over Russia and the world. We also had um, Tom Burgess, another very good uh, British-based uh, financial journalist who, who, who wrote a book very much uh, like Belton. What do you make of the kind of rotten capitalism that, um, that Putin, at least according to journalists like Belton uh, and, and, and Burgess, are exporting to the rest of the world? Well, I just want to clarify, because I think I understand what you mean in terms of how the Russian system works and what they're doing inside Russia. But I'm a little I don't know if I'm sure what that argument is about how it's getting exported. Obviously, you know, oligarchs have a lot of power and influence and money all over the place. But I'm not quite sure what you mean about exporting it. Well, a rotten kind of capitalism, uh, uh, according to Belton, at least. And, and you need to read a book. It's a really good book. Um, 
it's a kind of state-sponsored capitalism in which money is filtered through the system for the benefit of the autocracy, um, which doesn't really create any uh, broad wealth and, 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 and generally compounds inequalities. So it's a kind of, it's, it's the capitalism of the oligarch. Got it. And I the oligarchy, which obviously Putin, who reputedly now is the richest man in the world, even richer than than, than Bezos or Musk, uh, is uh, the uh, the uh, the the founder and figurehead of. Right. Well, I apologize for sort of ringing the same bell over and over again, but I think for me it comes back to the question of where do we stand when we are looking at it and judging it? So I would say that generally speaking, I've read, you know, I haven't read the authors you're talking about, but I've read a lot of writers making similar points in very powerful ways. And I I rarely have issue with the facts. Um, Sometimes I do a little, but it seems that generally speaking, that is happening inside Russia. Um, But the question is, why do we have as our primary response the judgment that they are kleptocratic oligarchic criminals. It's not necessarily, why are we name calling? Essentially, first of all- Because that's what they are. I mean, as as Belton suggests, as as Burgess suggests, and many other journalists, what they are peddling, what they've created, and what they're trying to peddle to the rest of the world is is a kleptocracy. Yes, but I'm not sure about the peddling to the rest of the world, but that's not the- important point. The important point for me is that our capitalist system went through a stage that looked a lot like that. And even now, our capitalistic, our capitalist system has elements of that that are very strong. So it seems to me that when we put our energy into, I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't know about it or talk about it. But when we get on a kind of a high horse and complain about them and how terrible they are and what kleptocrats and autocrats they are, it's a way of kind of avoiding taking on those same issues that are present in our society. And it also feels to me a little, uh, almost like disingenuous because their, their system, this version of their system is much younger than ours. If these systems develop the way they do, that's maybe a stage you go through. Now, Maybe not. Maybe they're Sorry, not. Sorry, what do you mean a stage you go through? What do you mean a stage you go through? I'm not clear. That as, that as capitalist systems develop and grow, they have stages that include essentially, whether you call them robber barons, oligarchs, kleptocrats, that you have a stage of your capitalism that is like that, as we did. Now, again, I'm not excusing it or defending it. Rather, I'm saying I would hope for them that that would be a stage and that they would move through it, the sooner the better. I don't know if that will happen. I don't think it's our job as Americans to make that happen. That's their job as Russians. Our job is to say, how do we feel about how our capitalism is going? There seem to be certain ways in which it's out of control, certain ways in which it's run away, certain ways in which the Bezos and the whoever else has maybe too much political power here as well. And that's where I would put my focus. It's not to deny the analysis of their system, but it's to be careful with what you do with it. Joe, the subtitle of your book is An Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War. But there really, I mean, I'm not convinced there is a second Cold War, at least when it comes to Russia. The real Second Second Cold War is with China, 
Uh, we've had a lot of shows about the China-American relationship. We've had Kishore Mabubani, very controversial Singapore-based analyst, who um, is relatively sympathetic to China and he believes that uh, what he calls the contest against China is revealing American insecurity. Do you think that Russia really matters anymore? I mean, it it matters to people like yourself who are invested intellectually in it. You, you, You created the Americans. It's a remarkable country and culture. Uh, But does it really matter in world terms? For Americans, the real issue is China, isn't it? I think that whether or not you choose to call it a second Cold War, whether or not you want to reserve that term for Russia or use it more with China, where we go with China, I, I don't know. But I will say this. There are two fundamental things happening in our conflict with Russia that I think we really have to pay attention to. One is this battle back and forth that has involved them putting so many of their best resources into undermining our political system at a time when our political system is really struggling. That's not good. And I I would call that you know, indicative that there's something that deserves to be labeled a Cold War, but it, it doesn't really matter. You could call it anything or call it nothing. It's dangerous. I, as I said before, I don't know how to really estimate how much of a role that plays in, in our problem. It may be a little, it may be a lot, but it's not good. And then all you can't say is this, this remains a, a nuclear power uh, with a formidable, you know, military presence. They're, it's true that they're not what they were, but they seem to do a lot with what they have in the arena of international conflict. So it seems not just theoretically dangerous, but actively dangerous enough that I'm pretty worried about it. And interestingly enough, I'm not a China expert. I'm very loath to talk about China. I don't know where we're going with China or what's going to happen in our relationship there, but I don't have the same trepidation that we could stumble into uh, something much worse overnight, and I don't have the same uh, clarity or certainty that we are already in a shit. By the way, you know, China takes plenty of aggressive actions against us and vice versa in terms of, you know, cyber attacks and cyber espionage and espionage in general. Yes, I don't see yet, or at least I'm not aware of evidence that China is actively uh, working to undermine or destroy our political system, which Russia is trying to do. Well, controversial stuff, fascinating. Uh, Joseph uh, Weisberg's new book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War, is just out. Um, He's also uh, the inventor of The Americans, a very popular television series, knows this subject inside out. Joe, congratulations on the book. Very controversial. I think a lot of people will have strong opinions on it. You're talking to me from your home in New York City. What else should people be reading uh, in these strange times in addition to Russia Upside Down? Well, first I want to say what a pleasure it was. It's really great to talk to somebody who's so uh, well-versed in this area. And I will probably never again talk to somebody who was just having lunch in Kazakhstan the other day. That's, that's Yeah, I'm sure. Thing. Joe, you tell the, all the girls that, don't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Have you been to Kazakhstan? It's quite a trip. No, I haven't. I, I seem to very frequently get to, you know, mention to people that I was in Tbilisi. I seem to run into uh, a fair number of Georgians, but I haven't been to Kazakhstan and it, and it never comes up. But I'd like to go. For sure, I'd like to go. Talk about an interesting political spot as well. Um, 
anyway, I would, uh, I would rec I, re I have two books that I recently read that I'd recommend. One is called uh, Solomon Gursky Was Here by Mordecai Richler. I've been mm. pronouncing his name Rickler my whole life. I think now it's Richler. Anyway, that's an old book, though. I, I mean, that's a... That's an old book by a wonderful, wonderful Canadian novelist. But as you can see, I always find it useful to try and gain some perspective. And sometimes how things looked, you know, 20 years ago is, is pretty helpful for that, too. It's, it's a beautiful book and extraordinary. The other thing I was going to mention is I just finished a book called Extra Lives by Tom Bissell, which is a collection of these incredible essays about video games, which I thought was a topic I had absolutely no interest in, and I could not put this book down. Mm. Well, I hope you I hope you get the chance to read Belton's book on 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 capitalism in in Russia because I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, I think your book is uh, is an interesting, uh, very controversial take on R or the Western relationship, particularly the U.S. relationship with Russia. It's good stuff. Russia upside down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War. Um, Joseph Weisberg, real honor to talk to you, and I hope you'll come back on the show. Maybe we could do a show about the Americans because. Uh, Everyone watches that, and it's been a huge success. So uh, thank you so much, and keep well, keep writing, keep causing trouble. Thank you. Well, you as well. It's a great pleasure. Thank you.